If they can do this to a market 25 times bigger, imagine what they can do to Bitcoin. Spot Bitcoin ETFs could soon be making a grand entrance into the US market as the count of Bitcoin ETF applications with the SEC continues to grow. While Bitcoin supporters are giddy with excitement over institutional involvement, they've missed something big, something that could actually compromise the very essence of Bitcoin. And we're about to tell you what no one else will. Before we get started, a quick recap is in order. In our previous letter, we dove into the mechanics of ETFs using gold ETFs as an example. We uncovered the hidden truths behind these commodity-backed funds, from a lack of insurance and audits for custodian-held gold to the potentially fake gold sitting in the vaults of custodians. We told you how the same issues could be lurking around the corner when it comes to Bitcoin ETFs. We also introduced you to Phantom Bitcoin, wherein the participation of multiple custodians and exchanges within Bitcoin ETFs could potentially obscure the actual impact of ETF acquisitions on the Bitcoin market in the long term. And therein lies the biggest problem, one that could destroy the very essence of Bitcoin itself. So what could this big problem be? In order to understand this, let's go back to something we wrote many years ago. Over the course of the last decade, we have explained how central banks have seized control of the world. They literally own everything. Sitting at the top is the king of all banks, the Federal Reserve. As the head honcho, the Federal Reserve has three primary responsibilities, according to the Fed itself. One, conducting monetary policy. Two, supervising and regulating banking institutions. Three, providing payment services to banking institutions. In simpler terms, the Fed oversees every financial transaction, controls interest rates, controls the banks, and controls liquidity and the money supply. It controls everything. But throughout its 100-year history, the Fed has learned that when it increases the money supply, inflation occurs very rapidly. Conversely, the Fed has always known that decreasing the money supply leads to deflation very rapidly. One could argue that that was how the Fed maintained control throughout history. But shortly after its inception, in 1913, the Fed began to intervene by increasing the money supply as a result of the financing requirements of World War I. During the first two years under Fed control, inflation averaged 1%. By the third year, it had reached 7.9%. By the fourth, 17.4%. Fifth year, 18%. Sixth year, 14.6%. And seventh year, 15.6%. Coincidentally or not, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, 20% of the total cost to the U.S. of the war was financed through money creation, roughly the amount of inflation that took place during that time. After seven years, inflation reversed course with the U.S. having fallen into a deep depression. Over the next decade, inflation remained subdued, that is, until World War II. Then came the end of the Bretton Woods system, when gold's link was removed from the dollar. Effectively, given the Fed the ability to increase the money supply at will. And that is exactly what the Fed did. The Fed's actions immediately resulted in and directly affected inflation, as increasing the money supply always has, leading to the great inflation of the 1970s. In its own words, the Fed manages monetary policy to promote a healthy economy by keeping prices stable and supporting a high level of employment. It attempts to do this through inflation targeting. Since its inception, the Fed has attempted to keep prices stable while increasing the money supply. 
That's because, as I mentioned many times before, the more the Fed can lend the U.S. money printing, the more control it will have over the country. As we mentioned before, the Fed works only to pursue its own growth, to engulf more of society into its banking system. But throughout the three historical examples, World War I, World War II, and the end of Bretton Woods, the Fed has not been able to keep inflation subdued when money was created, just as every nation or bank has not been able to do in the past. That is, up until the last 20 years. And that is where modern-day financial science comes into play. Here's the truth about inflation. Increasing the money supply has always led to an immediate and noticeable increase in inflation. But between 1991 to 2021, average annual U.S. inflation never rose above 4%, despite record amounts of monetary injections. As a matter of fact, since the end of the Bretton Woods system, inflation under 3% was a rare occurrence, happening only once in 1986. Take a look at this chart in our actual article. This is until 1993. After 1993, things changed dramatically. Annual average inflation over 4% never happened again until 2021. But how? How was the Fed able to come close to a target rate of 2% inflation despite record low interest rates and dramatic increases in the money supply? How was the Fed able to achieve this feat when everyone before has failed? Well, it's actually quite simple. If you control price, you control inflation. In January 1993, the first ETF began trading, along with regulatory exemptions by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission on certain swaps and hybrid instruments. At first, it was just the S&P 500 depository receipt, or what we know as the SPDR. But then came others, lots of them. In less than 10 years, the ETF market grew from one fund in 1993 to more than 100 funds by 2002. Today, there are over 1,000 ETF funds, many of which are directly related to the price of resources and commodities. Everything from gold, oil, gas, copper, aluminum, wheat, grains, sugar, cotton, and even livestock can now be traded via ETFs instead of a futures contract. What's the difference between an ETF and a futures contract? Well, when you enter into a futures contract, you're essentially agreeing to buy or sell the underlying asset at a future date, regardless of whether its price has gone up or down. This is how resource producers, such as oil, uranium, and gold companies, hedge their production. They lock in a future selling price for their ongoing production that is only ready for sale sometime in the future. When that contract is up for delivery, the producers deliver a physical product to the buyer of that contract. If a future contract is settled with cash, there is still a transaction between two parties based on the price of the underlying asset. An ETF, on the other hand, doesn't work that way. When you buy shares of an ETF, you only own shares in the ETF fund and not the underlying asset that the ETF tracks. And while an ETF fund generally has to own the underlying asset that it tracks, ETF shareholders do not directly own or have any direct claim to the underlying investments in the fund. They only own part of the fund. Now, we use the word generally because there have been many reports that many of the ETF funds don't actually have the amount of resources they claim to have. See our letter, How Non-Existent Metals Are Used as Collateral to Borrow Money, to learn more. ETFs have become so big with so many assets under management that it's become a recognizable standard in price discovery because many investors often perceive ETF share prices as spot prices for many commodities. As a result, a sell-off in, say, the GLD, 
the biggest ETF gold fund, could easily lead to a sell-off in paper gold and other global markets. Think of how easy it is for those with money to manipulate prices under this formula. For example, we all remember the NFT craze where Bored Ape Digital Art were selling for millions. All it took to create that value were a few headlines telling investors that one Bored Ape just sold for millions. After that, the floodgates opened for other Bored Ape art, with many NFTs exploding in value as a result. It wouldn't have mattered that Rob sold the Bored Ape to Paul, who borrowed the money from Rob. Now, imagine what you could do to price discovery if you have unlimited capital. Through ETFs and other financial instruments such as derivatives, the Fed and the downstream banks were able to stabilize price while creating more money than ever. For years, we have said that the majority of liquidity injections will go into the financial markets, which is why we have predicted that the stock market will continue to rise until the injections run dry. There have been record amounts of liquidity injections, injections that can't directly stimulate the economy because they are merely asset swaps. And we have had record low interest rates for nearly a decade. Yet, outside of the last two years, inflation has remained subdued. In other words, if you control price, you control inflation. Is it a coincidence that inflation didn't budge once ETFs were introduced in 1993? Back to Bitcoin. As we just told you, ETFs require no physical delivery of the underlying asset that it tracks. When it comes to spot Bitcoin ETFs, the same is true. The only thing transacted is cash. Here's how a spot Bitcoin ETF works. 1. An investor buys ETF units on a public exchange. 2. The ETF provider uses the invested funds to buy Bitcoin. 3. This Bitcoin is securely held in trust by regulated custodians for the ETF provider, often in cold storage wallets. If a unit holder wishes to redeem their ETF units, the ETF provider sells an equivalent amount of Bitcoin to facilitate the redemption process. Note how nowhere in the above steps does an investor actually take delivery of Bitcoin. Also, remember that cold storage wallets are offline, removed from the blockchain. Now, recall what we told you in our previous letter, Bitcoin ETFs, what they're not telling you. All Bitcoin ETFs, including the proposed ones, have custodians and sub-custodians. All trades via the Bitcoin ETFs will have to be cleared and settled, which means multiple exchanges and custodians. The more custodians become intertwined, the harder it will become to truly track the buying and selling of Bitcoin via the ETFs. Think about it this way. If it's already too hard to audit physical golden vaults, imagine auditing anonymous Bitcoin transactions being traded off the Bitcoin blockchain. In other words, when someone buys a share of a spot Bitcoin ETF, the actual Bitcoin transaction is happening within the custodian's cold wallets. And since cold wallets are offline or off the grid, no one really knows what's actually happening. You'd simply have to trust that a transaction occurred. You could think of it like our fractional reserve banking system, where $1 can be lent many times over. This means your Bitcoin ETF purchase could have zero influence on Bitcoin itself because it could be a wash trade within the custodian's cold storage wallet. Carry this forward with multiple ETFs through multiple custodians and, especially over time, a surge in Bitcoin ETF demand, which would generally drive the price higher, could have little to no impact on Bitcoin's price. Now, if you think that Bitcoin can't be manipulated, think again. If you've been reading this letter for a long time, 
you'll have learned about all of the commodity price manipulation that has taken place over the years. For example, in 2020, JP Morgan traders were convicted of fraud for attempting to manipulate the prices of gold, silver, platinum, and palladium futures contracts. JP Morgan was fined nearly a billion dollars. The gold market alone is worth over $13 trillion. If a few traders can manipulate the price of a market worth over $13 trillion, imagine what they can do to Bitcoin, which only has a market cap of $565 billion. If Bitcoin ETFs explode in demand, these funds could own hundreds of billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, all offline in cold storage wallets with Bitcoin transactions happening only on the funds and custodians' books. Now, recall what we wrote at the beginning of this year. Today, the world's three biggest asset managers, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street Global Advisors, manage over $22 trillion in assets. And this pile of assets has grown more than four times since 2008. That's an incredible amount of equity and, in turn, voting power. But the latest Bloomberg estimates, the big three, and those who control ETFs and mutual funds today own, on average, 21% of every S&P 500 company. And get this, they are major shareholders in 96% of all S&P 500 companies. The bigger the demand for Bitcoin ETFs, the bigger the market share these institutions will control of Bitcoin. But that's not all. Those JP Morgan traders were able to manipulate the price of futures contracts and physical assets. Imagine what they can do when they simply have to swap USB sticks. Seek the truth and be prepared.